Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Nearly 2,600 photographs from the Corcoran Gallery of Art were recently accessioned into the National Gallery of Art's collection. These acquisitions have richly expanded the gallery's holdings of photographs from the 1960s to the present, as well as in photojournalism, social documentary photography, and works by groundbreaking early photographers such as Edward Mybridge. In this lecture, held on December 17, 2018, as part of the Works in Progress lecture series at the National Gallery of Art, Emily Ann Francisco discusses the unique challenges of researching and cataloging this collection and provides a broad survey of its highlights. By now, most of us are likely familiar with the story of how the Corcoran's collection came to the National Gallery. In 2014, the gallery assumed stewardship of the Corcoran Gallery of Art's collection of paintings, sculpture, decorative arts, prints, drawings, photographs, and media arts. The day-to-day -day projects and activities of most NGA departments were drastically affected as decisions regarding works to accession or distribute were made over the next three years. In terms of volume, the departments most dramatically impacted were those related to works on paper, graphic arts, and photographs. For example, the Department of Photographs, which is the focus of my presentation today, added nearly 2,600 photographs to its collection. These 2,600 photographs expanded and diversified the NGA's photography collection, filling in a number of significant gaps. I would now like to pause for a moment and provide a bit of background on the Corcoran and its importance in the history of photography collecting and photography exhibitions. In addition to being one of the first art museums in the United States, the Corcoran Gallery of Art was also one of the first museums in the country to collect photographs. Its first acquisitions in this medium began with Edward Moybridge's Animal Locomotion series and also a rare album of Western landscape photographs from the US War Department's 1871-73 Wheeler survey. And the images in this album were made by Timothy O'Sullivan and William Bell, and you can see two examples of these on the right. The Corcoran opened to the public in 1874, and it purchased its nearly 700 Moybridge prints directly from the photographer in 1887. For context, most American museums of the 19th century did not actively collect or display photography as art. Yet it was almost a century later, from the late 1960s onward, that the Corcoran began to earnestly collect and exhibit photography. Through the efforts of associate director slash chief curator Jane Livingston and photography curator Francis Fralin, the institution actively engaged with a growing energy and excitement for photography and the art world. Livingston and Fralin collaborated on numerous important photography exhibitions, including The Indelible Image, Photographs of War, 1846 to the Present, as well as Changing Reality, Recent Soviet Photography. And the work on the left that you see here by Arthur Greenspawn uh, was, was one of the works shown in the Indelible Image exhibition. And the work on the right that you see was, a, was an, a, a work featured in Changing Reality. Now, although it had a photography curator in the 70s and 80s, the Corcoran's Department of Photography and Media Arts was officially founded in 1993 by curator Philip Brookman. And coincidentally, this was right around the same time that the National Gallery also founded its photography department. Um, the NGA began actively collecting photography in 1990, although its famous Alfred Stieglitz collection was given by Georgia O'Keeffe and the Stieglitz estate as far back as 1949. 
And if you're interested in learning more about these parallels between the two collections, there's a wonderful online feature for our 2016 exhibition called Intersections, which actually highlighted the joint photography collections of the National Gallery and the Corcoran. The strengths of the Corcoran's photography collection are its photographs from the 1960s through the 1990s, and especially its holdings in photojournalism and social documentary photography. On screen are two great examples of this by Benedict J. Fernandez and Marion Post Walcott. The collection also includes key works by artists from the 70s and 80s who are among the first to explore the artistic potential of color photography. And here are some examples by two important names in this medium, uh, William Christenberry and William Eggleston. Many of the Corcoran's most interesting photographs were acquired directly from artists through generous donations that were tied to the occasion of exhibitions, as in the case of the Gordon Parks collection. The collection was given directly to the Corcoran by Parks following his 1997 retrospective exhibition, which was called Half Past Autumn, The Art of Gordon Parks. And some of these works can actually be seen on view right now here at the National Gallery in our Gordon Parks exhibition, uh, which was also coincidentally curated by Philip Brookman, who we're very fortunate to have here as a consulting curator in the photography department. The Corcoran's photographic holdings ranged in time period, size, and photographic process, which was reflected in the 2600 works accessioned by the National Gallery. These works filled significant gaps in the NGA's collection, while also expanding and complementing the gallery's existing holdings. The sheer diversity of works accessioned by the Department of Photographs only heightened the strong need for everything to be properly documented, researched, and cataloged. With this in mind, I thought it might be important to next explain what cataloging is, particularly for those of us who may not be involved with this type of work on a daily basis. Cataloging is the process of recording information about objects to the fullest extent possible in a museum's catalog, or in other words, in a collection management database. At its core, it is also a process of close researching and compiling the history of an object to the fullest extent, fullest extent possible. Especially in the case of the National Gallery, where our collection management database feeds directly to the public website, it is extremely important that our object records are as accurate and complete as possible for the benefit of our visitors. Obviously, in an ideal world, uh, every object in a museum's collection should be cataloged, uh, but the process does take time and resources. Cataloging is also an ongoing process, as new information and research should continuously be incorporated into object records. In regards to Corcoran photographs, this last part is critical. While the Corcoran Gallery kept detailed records in print and digital form, these records certainly held some gaps, areas for further inquiry, and occasionally a few discrepancies. This was where my job came in. Although all of the Corcoran's collection data had been transferred into our database, some information existed only in the Corcoran object file. Um, for those of you who don't already know, uh, the National Gallery does use the museum system, or TMS for short, um, as our collection management software, and the Corcoran used the same software as well. My job was to ensure that all of an object's known history was documented in its new TMS record. In addition to performing research on provenance, exhibition histories, and bibliographies for Corcoran photographs, 
I regularly did fact checking in the form of verifying dates, titles, and medium lines for any given print. There were also often differences between the language used by the Corcoran to describe certain photographic processes which can have multiple names and the controlled vocabularies that we use here at the NGA. In this regard, I often found myself doing a bit of uh, TMS copy editing, as I jokingly like to call it, for consistency and general cleanup. Overall, every stage of the cataloging process required attention to detail and strong organizational methods. With such a large group of photographs, you really did have to be able to see the, the small picture in the form of a single print, as well as the big, big picture, meaning the entire photography collection. So you may be wondering, what exactly is the step-by-step -step process for cataloging a photograph here at the National Gallery? It begins from the moment a work is accessioned into the collection, which is when it is officially added to the list of works to be cataloged. First, the cataloger has to examine the print in person, and I found this to be one of the most exciting aspects of cataloging work. It was truly a thrill to work directly with objects on a day-to-day -day basis. At this stage, one also evaluates if there are any potential conservation needs and contacts photo conservation for their input as needed. I would also evaluate whether the work required any form of rehousing, uh, meaning a new mat, a new folder with interleaving or a special archival box for storage. For both conservation and rehousing needs, I maintained regular spreadsheets documenting what needed to be done and describing the priority level of the task. High priority tasks were reported to photo conservation or matting and framing immediately, while lower priority tasks were monitored and documented as such on the appropriate lists. During the physical examination of the print, certain basic information is recorded in TMS. This includes measurements. For a photograph, this means the dimensions of both the printed image and also the sheet dimensions. And here you can see this difference via the white border surrounding this Christenberry print on the left. If the work is framed and will likely stay framed, those numbers are recorded as well. Inscriptions should also be recorded. Uh, any and all artist signatures, handwritten notations, etc., that are written on the object have to be transcribed. And on the right, you can see the signatures and inscriptions that I found on the verso or, or back of the same Christenberry print. Both the recto and verso, so front and back, of a print are examined, and all marks, inscriptions, stamps, labels, etc., are appropriately documented according to the department's cataloging style guide. Attributes, or specific keywords, are also added to the TMS record. These are words that make the object more easily searchable and include the school or nationality of the artist, the technique or medium of the work, the theme, and any keywords. Uh, the Department of Photographs normally aims for at least two. Next, after the physical examination of the object, I would take a look at the Corcoran's object file for the work. Much like the object files that we keep here at the National Gallery for every work in our collection, this file often contained information regarding the print's provenance, its exhibition history, and other critical details. And what you're seeing here on the left is one of the Corcoran's accession records, uh, which was a document that I would often use to guide my initial research, uh, especially for things like provenance. The file would also sometimes contain publications that illustrated the work or any additional research material. All of this information I carefully examined and added to the TMS record under the notes section. 
And actually, this Christenberry work, sadly, did not have too many documented exhibition histories or publications. Uh, but on this slide, you can see uh, a fuller example with the object record for the Eggleston print that I was also showing earlier. While cross-referencing the Corcoran object file, I would also perform outside research to verify and collect information regarding any series or portfolio documentation, as well as alternative titles. Often, this was the stage where I would verify or update the photograph's dates. The NGA lists the creation date of the negative in our date field, while the print date, if it's known, is always included in the medium line. In my research, I would additionally gather exhibition and publication histories that might not have been included in its old file or simply might just not have been known to the Corcoran. Whenever I added a new exhibition entry or documented any publications, I had to be careful and verify that it was our specific print that was illustrated or included in that exhibition. Since photographers often make multiple prints, I had to ensure that the exhibitions and publications I documented were specific to our print, not another print of the same image. This is essential to the accuracy of our records, but it also is critical in keeping track of the total amount of light a print has been exposed to throughout its life. A tool in TMS called Light Exposure Diary is often used to monitor this information and documents the print's total length of light exposure during exhibitions. In this way, recording exhibition histories is very important for conservation purposes, specifically in the case of photographs, uh, which as we know are inherently light sensitive and are impacted significantly by, by cumulative light exposure over time. So when a work has been fully cataloged, uh, the TMS record is ready to be reviewed and validated for the website. By the time this occurs, all the aforementioned fields and research areas have been completed to the cataloger's full ability. Some records may appear more thorough than others. It may depend on the amount of existing research material and documentation. Ultimately, every case is unique to the object. Now that I've explained the process for cataloging Corcoran photographs, for the next part of my presentation, I want to share with you some of the highlights from my time cataloging this collection. Here are two photographs by an artist many of you are likely already familiar with, uh, Sally Mann. The recent National Gallery exhibition, in fact, was partially sparked by the NGA's acquisition of 25 Sally Mann photographs from the Corcoran collection. These two photographs here, uh, which actually weren't shown in our exhibition, are from a series inspired by the death of the artist Greyhound, Eva. It's a very morbid story in a way, uh, which relates back to Sally Mann's lingering fascination with decay and the vulnerabilities of the body. The artist had arranged for Eva's body to be buried in a cage to prevent the remains from being picked over by animals. Later, Mann dug up the cage and proceeded to photograph Eva's bones. These images were included in Mann's 2003 publication titled What Remains, which was also accompanied by an exhibition at the Corcoran in 2004. These prints, used for the publication, were given to the Corcoran by the artist in accession by the museum the following year. As I mentioned before, uh, the Corcoran frequently acquired photographs from the exhibitions it presented. These next several photographs entered the museum's collection in that way. The exhibition that these were shown in was called In Response to Place, Photographs from the Nature Conservancy's Last Great Places, and it was a traveling exhibition sponsored by the Nature Conservancy. And the related publication uh, is shown here in the center. 
The exhibition featured commissioned photographs by contemporary artists who were each invited to create works at specific sites designated by the Conservancy as the last great places. William Wegman was one of the artists invited, as was Sally Mann as well. Wegman's images were taken in Cobbscook Bay, Maine, where he photographed his iconic Weimaraner dogs. Sally Mann's, in contrast, were made in Sian Khan and Kalak Mool in Mexico. The exhibition opened at the Corcoran and then traveled from 2001 to 2005 to institutions across the country, including the Houston Museum of Science, the Bellevue Art Museum, and also the High Museum of Art, to name a few. Because the Corcoran had organized the traveling exhibition, the Nature Conservancy asked the artists to donate their photographs to the Corcoran, which many did. In addition to its interest in collecting contemporary photography, the Corcoran had a special interest in photography from and of the Washington DC region. In the next few slides, I thought I would show you a selection of works that fall under this umbrella. From 1975 to 76, the Corcoran had embarked on a bicentennial project titled The Nation's Capital in Photographs, 1976. Eight American photographers were invited to spend extended periods in Washington, D.C., and were encouraged to photograph the city using their own distinctive vision. The participating photographers included Louis Baltz, Joe Cameron, Robert Cumming, Roy DeCarava, Lee Friedlander, John Gosage, Jan Groover, and Anthony Hernandez. Some of these artists chose to photograph recognizable sites and monuments, and here you can see two examples of Lee Friedlander's contributions. To the left, you all might recognize our very own West Building, uh, and on the right, some cherry blossoms with a faint view of the Washington Monument in the background. Other artists, like Louis Baltz, turned to different subjects. Baltz, for example, chose to photograph in suburban Maryland, specifically in Wheaton, Silver Spring, Bethesda, Chevy Chase, Towson, and College Park. With the artist's past projects in mind, like his Tract Houses series from 1973, these subjects made perfect sense. And actually, I should mention the Tract Houses series was another, uh, yet another major Corcoran acquisition. You can see one of the examples from this series on the right. Baltz chose to record the industrial buildings and mass-produced suburban homes of Maryland, which strikingly contrasts with Friedlander's monuments. <laughs> Together, however, we gain a broader, more complete vision of the spaces in and surrounding the nation's capital. One can imagine what it must have been like to see the sheer range of other artists' interpretations in this exhibition series. And I would also like to note that these works I've just shown you serve as one example of the ways that the Corcoran Collection filled out and expanded the NGA's holdings. Uh, the works by Baltz and Friedlander for the nation's capital and photographs really complement works by both artists, artists that were already in the NGA collection, uh, like those from Baltz's Park City series and Friedlander's other images of American monuments, uh, examples of which are shown here. One important part of the Corcoran collection that affected many departments and should be mentioned is the Evans-Tibbs collection. This collection of artwork by African-American artists had been started by the early 20th century opera singer Lillian Evans Tibbs and was greatly expanded by her grandson, the Washington DC based art collector Thurlow Tibbs. And Lillian herself is actually depicted in the portrait you see on the right. The Department of Photographs acquired three works from this collection, these two on screen and then a third by P.H. Pope. 
One of the artists represented in the Evans-Tibbs collection is Addison Skurlock, who produced these two photographs, and he was a major portrait photographer and businessman in Washington. He's perhaps best known for his Skurlock studio uh, and his images of black middle-class communities in DC in the early to mid 20th century. And these two works were the first by Skurlock to enter the NGA's collection. Uh, so the one that you see to the right is a work from the Evans-Tibbs collection, and on the left was actually a Corcoran purchase. In addition to the Evans-Tibbs photographs, we also acquired several additional works by Harlem photographer James Van Der Zee, nearly doubling our existing holdings of the artist's work. Jumping forward in time, this next photograph was particularly interesting to catalog and research. You might notice that the shape is a little bit different. Uh, rather than a rectangular image or a standard paper support, the image is printed on a leaf. To measure this work, I took the height and diameter of the leaf and then the framed dimensions. The work actually was mounted on a black surface. The artist is Bin Don, a Vietnamese American artist who uses alternative printing techniques in his photographic practice. He's most interested in the relationship between history, memory, and the landscape. And some of you may have already seen his work in the Memory of Time exhibition we had here back in 2015. We also have an excellent interview with the artist that was recently posted on the NGA website if you're curious and would like to learn more about his work. Through experimentation, Don developed a unique process that he calls chlorophyll printing, which transfers photographic images to natural supports like leaves and grass through means of photosynthesis. And I'm still personally trying to wrap my head around such a fascinating technique. Don printed many images using this method, and this specific work was part of a series related to portrait photographs of prisoners who were killed and became victims of the Khmer Rouge regime's genocidal policies in Cambodia. Prior to the Corcoran collection, the NGA had several contemporary daguerreotypes by Don, but this chlorophyll print was the first of its kind to enter the collection. Here is a work that I cataloged that is a great example of a photograph with substantial inscriptions to record. This work by Laurie Simmons is also quite large at about uh, 89 by 53 inches framed. From the extensive labels and inscriptions I transcribed from the back of the work's frame, as well as from cross-referencing relevant exhibition catalogs, I learned that this work traveled to Raleigh, North Carolina and Jacksonville, Florida as part of a traveling exhibition called Is Seeing Believing? The Real, the Surreal, the Unreal in Contemporary Photography. The work is from Simmons's Walking Object series in which the artist anthropomorphized various objects like books, handbags, guns, et cetera, uh, commenting on the, the object, excuse me, the object of objectification of people in commodity culture. Here, however, she photographed her friend and fellow artist, Jimmy DeSanta, who was the first person to teach her how to develop film. Here, he appears as a literal embodiment of photography. Simmons was largely inspired by dancing objects she had seen in TV commercials like cigarette boxes, and the giant camera costume that DeSanta wears is actually a film prop. DeSanta died of AIDS in 1990, three years after this photograph was taken, and so it remains both a personal tribute to Simmons's close friend, as well as a clever metaphor for the pervasive presence of photography in contemporary culture. 
This print was also the first large-scale print by Simmons to be acquired by the NGA, and it joined two smaller prints by the artists that were already in the collection. Here's one last work that I particularly enjoyed cataloging and researching. This multi-panel work is by Lorna Simpson and is titled Coiffeur. It was acquired by the Corcoran as a gift of its women's committee, which was one of several charitable groups that would often buy works for the museum. Coiffeur was exhibited several times at the Corcoran, and it was also notably shown in one of the earlier exhibitions organized by what's now the Smithsonian's National Museum of African American History and Culture. And you can see here in this screenshot from our website, uh, that exhibition is at the very top of the list from 1994. It's called Imagining Families. Like many of Simpson's other works, the artist uses text as a key component of the installation. Here, the text provides instructions for braiding hair, which also ties in with the work's title, coiffeur, the French word for hairstyle. The triptych above the text first depicts a woman whose hair has been cut short, followed by a circle of braided hair, and finally the back of an African mask. In this sequence, Simpson depicts a visual connection between African-American hair and African ritual. Since being cataloged, this work has also been included in a special educational feature on the NGA website related to art and identity. And I encourage you all to check it out. It's really wonderful. Similar to the case with the Laurie Simmons print that I showed a moment ago, uh, this work was only the third work by Lorna Simpson to enter the gallery's collection. And it now complements two diptychs that are shown here. There are so many other photographic gems that we acquired from the Corcoran collection. I could go on for hours telling you about them all. I'm truly honored to have been a part of this major cataloging project and to have had the opportunity to learn this collection so closely and also learn from my phenomenal colleagues in the Department of Photographs. Thank you. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.